Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Coming up, President Xi Jinping puts forward a three-point proposal for settlement of Palestinian question as he talks with visiting Palestinian President Abbas in Beijing. The flame for the Hangzhou 2022 Asian Games was lit at the Liangzhu Ancient City, marking the 100-day countdown to the opening of the Games. Germany unveils its first-ever security strategy, labeling China as the rival and competitor to Berlin, but saying that without Beijing, many global challenges and crises cannot be resolved. First on today's show, China and Palestine have agreed to establish a strategic partnership. The announcement came as Chinese President Xi Jinping held talks with visiting Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in Beijing. Xi Jinping reiterated China's firm support for the Palestinian people's just cause for restoring their legitimate national rights. The Chinese president also made a three-point proposal on resolving the Palestinian question, including establishing an independent state of Palestine that enjoys full sovereignty on the basis of the 1967 borders and with East Jerusalem as its capital, meeting Palestine's economic and livelihood needs and keeping to the right direction for peace talks. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor of Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Dr. Wang, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure again. Um, so what do you make of the significance of uh, the establishment of this strategic partnership between China and Palestine? I think it is very important because on the one hand, it suggests that China continue to recognize and stress the nationhood uh, or statehood of the Palestinian uh, people, because uh, although that uh, there has been more and more states that are on the process of recognizing the, the, the independence rights of Palestinian people, uh, but there were still a lot of arguments that uh, are against this, uh, this kind of opinion. So that's why China, uh, with the, the, this kind of the effort that China and Palestine, we established the strategic partnership that, China, that suggested that China uh, actually recognize the political rights and the political status, uh, legal status of the Palestinian Authority. So this is a very important step. Uh, and on the other hand, we have to know that uh, uh, China's upgrade, upgrade its relations with Palestine to the strategic partner. It suggests that China and Palestine uh, hold very strong confidence uh, with each other's co- cooperation in the future. So under this kind of a new term or the new partnership, the strategic partnership, much more uh, frameworks, much more cooperation items and the projects will be pushed forward and encouraged. So I think in the future we will witness uh, all uh, a series of um, uh, different uh, cooperation uh, projects will be implemented by the two sides together. Yeah, and, and what are the key areas of economic cooperation between China and Palestine, and especially how has the Belt and Road Initiative enhanced their trade relationship? Uh, yes, the the, uh, the first of all, the, tr- the, the actually the the trade volume between the two sides, China and Palestine, has already exceeded uh, that uh, 120 or 130 million U.S. dollars. Uh, although it's not that much if we compare to uh, other bilateral trades uh, between China and other uh, major Middle Eastern countries, but we have to know that Palestine is a state with a very 
<clears throat> difficulties, for example, the isolation from some country and also the its very limited rights of uh, independent sovereignty right now. So this this uh, this growing, the very fast growing of the bilateral trade volume is actually the very big and difficult achievement has been co-achieved uh, uh, by China and the Palestinian people. So. Uh, in the, so if we look at the, 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 the actually the volume the volume of trade, actually China's exports most the majority absolutely majority of the items to the Palestine. Uh, but when but then uh, we actually imported uh, very limited items from Palestine. That's because Palestine now faces a lot of economic social problems and difficulties, and they do not have the enough capabilities to organize their own economic structure. So in the future, I think with the strategic partnership established and the more cooperation are pushed forward, uh, I think that China and Palestine will find a way out together to uh, to push forward, for example, the co-worked uh, team and the co-worked project areas and free zone areas that will further facilitate the bilateral trade. Not only more China's uh, exports to Palestine, but also maybe more Palestinians' items and goods to China in the future. Mm-hmm. And what do you make of President Xi's three-point proposal? How how do you think that could contribute to resolving the Palestinian question? Yes, yeah, President Xi's uh, three-point proposal this time is a continuation of the Chinese political promise to the independent uh, independent Palestinian uh, statehood. Because uh, in, in 2017, July of 2017, when President Xi met Mahmoud Abbas in Beijing, uh, President Xi uh, provided the, the, the four-point pr- proposal. But then, then now the three-point proposal. If we compare this kind of two uh, proposals, on the one hand, as, as we stress, it's the very, uh, it's very promise, political promise that made by made by China to the Palestinian people about their dream to 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 establishment of their independent state. And on the other hand, uh, in the in this very new three-point proposal, China first of all emphasized the importance of maintaining the the border line of the uh, of of the, uh, the, the border the border line of pre 1967, which is also called the so-called the Green Line between Israel and Palestine, and as the very foundation for the future Palestinian uh, territory. And also, uh, China emphasized that the, the East Jerusalem should become the capital of the future independent Palestine state. And also, that we uh, China also emphasized the very high need for the humanitarian assistance, humanitarian aid from the international society to Palestinian people. So actually, uh, because during the past years, a lot of things changed, especially some uh, some right wing groups inside Israel. Some uh, extremist uh, members inside Palestine, and also some other arguments from some Western countries. They hope to challenge the the very foundation of the bilateral trust between Palestinian people and Israeli people. So that's why China now pushed forward and stress again the very precondition and principles for the future Palestinian and Israeli peace and and the settlement of the Palestinian problem. So that is very major uh, political promise, and also China's uh, uh, very very uh, wisdom. I mean, very wise and smart uh, political framework for the settlement of this uh, difficult problem. I think it will find it will help the Palestinian people to find a way out. Mm-hmm. Well, the survey conducted by YouGov in May suggested that a sweeping 80% of Palestinians supported a Chinese role in Israeli-Palestinian peace talks, while the United States was seen as the least favorite option. What factors do you believe contributed to this perception? I think because uh, because China are highly expected, 
because China did something uh, right in other parts of the Middle East and in other parts of the world. So that's why uh, some people that um, many, the most majority of them may expect that China could contribute more, uh, bring more positive factors into the peace process between Israel and Palestine. Uh, and also, uh, we we have to say, yes, United States did something that's uh, positive and uh, good to the process of uh, peace uh, between Israelis and the Palestinians. But then uh, during the past decade, during the past decade, or especially during the past years, uh, that the United States actually uh, did very little or the things that they did are very negative uh, and harmful to the peace process between Israelis and the Palestinians. For example, the United States so-called the century deal, a uh, deal of a century uh, that pushed forward and organized by uh, the former president, Donald Trump, uh, actually destroyed the very confidence uh, and uh, their trust from Palestinian people to the peace process. And also uh, that China, compared to the China's role, the United States actually keep a very marginal or very uh, become uh, far away from the, the ambitious uh, plan to help the Palestinians and Israelis to sit down together to hold negotiation dialogue. So that's why, on the one hand, the Middle Eastern people, especially the Palestinians, they may become very, very disappointed over the United States' behavior. And, and, what, and on the other hand, they hope that China could do more. And given this, this time the meeting, I think China will contribute more active and more hopeful, uh, helpful factors into the peace process in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Today marks the 100-day countdown to the Hangzhou Asian Games. Organizers lit the flames for the games in the ruins of Liangzhu ancient city in Zhejiang province. The city boasts some of the earliest recorded evidence of Chinese civilization dating back 3,300 years BC. The torch relay will start in the middle of September at Hangzhou's West Lake, traveling across 11 cities in Zhejiang province. Hangzhou Organizing Committee Deputy Chair Zhou Xinqiang says all preparation work has entered the final stage. The Asian Games Organizing Committee has established a game time command and dispatch system based on 56 competition venue teams, supported by 17 special teams and guaranteed by city operations. It is to ensure that the game command and dispatch and emergency support capabilities meet requirements. So far, 42 test games have been held, and 13 test games will be held in the next stage to conduct a full stress test of the organization and operation of the event. The Hangzhou Asian Games will be the largest and most high-profile international sports event held in China after the pandemic. For more, Zhu Mandan spoke to Hong Kong delegation leader Kenneth Falk, who is also the vice president of the Sports Federation and Olympic Committee of Hong Kong. Hangzhou Asian Games is just 100 days away as the head of the Hong Kong delegation. Tell us about how the preparation is going so far. Well, I could tell you, first of all, we are all very excited. You know, we've been waiting for this Games for many years, many years in the making. Uh, because of the pandemic, it's been moved forward to 2023. But you know, that hasn't dampened our spirits. Uh, we have been given one more year in time, so all our athletes are actually very ready. Uh, they have been training locally, and but actually a lot of them are training overseas right now. And if you see their results after the pandemic, you know, there have been a lot of world championships and a lot of Asian championships. And a lot of our local athletes have gotten great results so far. So we are feeling very confident that we could, you know, have a really good streak of uh, medals 
uh, coming in, in Hangzhou. So we are ready and we will be leading our largest ever delegation to Hangzhou. Uh, so we are all very excited. This is China's third time hosting the Asian Games and it will be the first large-scale international sporting event China has hosted after the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you think that the, this give, gives these games a whole new meaning? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, the pandemic has really affected uh, the whole world, everyone around the world, but uh, particularly the sporting sector. If you remember two, three years ago, the whole sporting world has been put on a halt. No matter you're talking about large-scale uh, multidisciplinary games or even leagues or football, basketball, everything has come to a stop. So really, I think people felt really apart from each other, right? And, and the distance grew between country and country and also people and people. But we are excited to see, you know, these games being, you know, on, put on being full-fledged. Because, uh, first of all, I think before these games, uh, China also hosted the Winter Games. And it's really unprecedented and very difficult situation. And China also, of course, managed to do it in a very uh, grand and beautiful manner. But uh, now with all the restriction lifted, I think um, everyone's excited, not just ourselves, the whole world, I mean, whole of Asia. Uh, I, I, I believe, I believe uh, the, the organizing committee has a happy problem is that they're going to receive a higher than expected number of athletes. They really showcase that everyone's excited to come to games. Everyone's excited to come again to compete against each other. But again, I think on top of that, everyone's excited to see China after the uh, COVID pandemic. And then I'm sure Hangzhou will put on a great show, great competition, and everyone's excited to go. You've said before that you think China's three Asian games are reaching a time that represents a new era. We'll talk more about that. China hosted three Asian games. The first one is in 1990, the second one is uh, 2010, and now of course 2023. And in my eyes, it really represents three eras of China's development. You know, 1990 games, uh, unfortunately I wasn't there personally, but our family was also involved. You know, that really signifies the result or the, the, the prowess after the, our country opening up uh, after 1979, right? Over the 10 years of uh, opening up policy, and we used the Asian Games in Beijing to showcase uh, the new China back then. And 2010 really signifies a, a, an era of high economic growth. You know, after 2000, the year 2000, China experienced uh, high economic growth uh, over the next decade. And then again, we used Guangzhou Asian Games to showcase our economic prowess and also our economic success back then. But of course, after 2012, the new era came. And, you know, we have further opening up and we have on multiple fronts a lot of different achievements, not just economic power and also in terms of culture, in terms of our technology, in terms of our, you know, standing in the world community, in terms of our, you know, effects around the region and our, our, our really our soft power. So I think this time when Hangzhou comes around is another chance for the world to see the China and the new era and what we have achieved previously in the past 10 years, but more importantly, where we are going in the future. As the Vice President of the Sports Federation and Olympic Committee of Hong Kong, what do you think about Asia's sports development these years? In, in which areas have they improved on and where do they need to put more efforts in? Well, I think in general Asia, I think um, it's really Asian focused now. If you see a lot of international events, and also, if you, you look at a lot of, you know, uh, international federations, Asian federations, the influence of Asia is gaining, right? No matter we're talking about East Asia, 
Southeast Asia or West Asia. We're seeing a lot of action, a lot of competitions, a lot of involvement, and even frankly, a lot of resources and money putting into sports through the Asian or a Asia region. So I'm definitely very bullish in the future of sports in Asia. I think it will the, the dynamic is shifting and and the world lens will be focusing on Asia as well. And I think in terms of you know China as well, I think there's really been a change as well in mentality and how sports should be developed. You know, China is always a sport, strong sporting nation. You know, how does that manifest? In the previously, it manifests in the way of you know getting medals. We have excellent results in the Olympic and Asian Games. So now I think the sports policy also follows that besides getting great results in competitions by elite athletes, we should focus more on you know the general population. How can the mass? How can the young youngsters of of Hong Kong and also mainland really participate in sports so they can have a healthy lifestyle? They might not be Olympic athletes. They might not get medals. But I think I believe you know for the nation, more people get involved in sports. No matter mentally or physically, it's beneficial for them. So I think in the future five, ten years, China will really focus on really bringing up the whole sporting uh, nation or the sporting interest through policy, through resources, but also through you know grassroots programs and you know facilities. I think these are things that you know China will be focusing on. And I think moving forward, China will definitely be able to share its experience with our neighboring countries. How we could build together, you know, a one world um, to use sports being the linkage, being the bridge to to you know form friendship. I think this is also an important agenda that we should be embarking on. That's very well said. Um, thank you for that. And aside from being the head of the Hong Kong delegation, you are involved in the Hangzhou Asian Games through a second identity, the president of the Asian Electronic Sports Federation. What do you think it yeah. means for esports to be in, in the Asian Games and for the very first time as well, and especially in the city of Hangzhou? And what will change for esports and what will change for the sporting world in general? Well, that's a very uh, broad question, but I think the first thing that means is I'll be very busy. I think that's number one. Uh, uh, two hats, and uh, but but of course both uh, responsibilities are very dear to my heart. You know, so you mentioned about AESF. You know, it's it's an organization that I've I've been proud to represent since 2017. So now it's five years. You know, looking back to cut a long story short, this five years has not been easy. You know, for me, um, when I embarked on this journey, I think the goal for me. It's really how to bring esports and the traditional sporting community closer together. I remember, uh, you know, representing my organization to attend the esports forum organized by IOC Thomas Bach in Lausanne in 2018. Back then, I thought, you know, actually the views and the views on esports and how esports can work with traditional sports were quite wide. You know, there wasn't a big consensus. But at the same time, IOC did recognize that you know athletes participating in esports. Do train and compete in the same vigor and and same same hard work, let's say, as traditional athletes. So there's common ground, but still apart. But through these five years, I'm so happy to see that you know under the guise of OCA, they've accepted esports as a medal sport. This is a milestone. It shows that in the past five years, not just society, but the sporting circle, the sporting world, has you know let esports or actually open their mind to a different mode of competition or something that's a, a, a very different to traditional ways of working. And to me, esports is not just about gaming. Gaming or esports you see now is one form of manifestation of esports. To my eyes, 
I think the future, how technology combines or how you use technology to have new forms of competition, maybe work with traditional sports, traditional federations to up, let's not say upgrade, to offer audiences with a new experience. I think this is something that is very interesting. This is a very interesting uh, time, I think. And we are really at the crossroads. So, you know, being, having Hangzhou uh, host the esports, I think it will showcase to the world what is possible and what can come in the future. That's Kenneth Falk, the head of the Hong Kong delegation at the Hangzhou Asian Games, speaking with my colleague Zhu Mandan. Coming up next, Chinese economy continued to recover in May, although experts warn about challenges from external headwinds and domestic structural reforms. Germany unveils its first-ever security strategy, labeling China as a rival and competitor to Berlin, but says that without Beijing, many global challenges and crises cannot be resolved. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China's economy continued to recover in May. Official data shows China's value-added industrial output increased 3.5% in May from a year ago. Retail sales experienced a year-on-year surge of 12.7% last month. Fixed asset investment went up 4% in the first five months of the year. But the National Bureau of Statistics has warned about the challenges from a complicated and severe external environment, as well as the pressure of domestic structural adjustment. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Yao Shujie, Chengkeng Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Good evening, Dr. Yao. Thanks for joining us. Hi, good evening. Um, Thank so, you for asking me. Yeah. As we can tell from the, da- from the data, um, China's economy continued to recover in May, but it looks that the growth momentum has somehow weakened compared to earlier this year. What do you think could be the reasons? There are two possible reasons for the, the, the slight um, lower figure than we expected. The first one is um, as the, the, the official from the National Bureau of Statistics just stated. Uh, last year, in the same period, there was a, a very strong recovery of the economy. So the, the measure, you know, the, compa- the comparison with last May, I think, because the base last May was slightly higher than usual. So this is why we have a lower growth figure this year. Um, on another, another issue, I think the, the difficulty and challenges faced by the Chinese economy is still there particularly the structural change. For example, like investment, uh, 4%, 4% is relatively low. And also the uh, industrial value added 3.5% is also relatively low. So we expect that uh, this figure will be higher. Now in the retail, it's uh, over 12%, which is quite a, a strong uh, increase compared to last year and the previous month. So, um, yes, I think the recovery is obvious. Uh, the, the growth momentum is still there, but the, the challenges is still uh, very strong and, and real. <laughs> so maybe in the rest of the year, China should put every effort to increase investment and also to boost the industry.
Yes, and, and actually the MBS has also emphasized the challenges from a complicated external environment, as well as the domestic structural adjustments. So can you elaborate more on these challenges and, and what matters can be taken to address them? The, the structural issue is because of China is facing the industrial transformation from the low-end manufacturing to high-end manufacturing and from the new from the old industry to the relatively new industry, you know, characterized by AI and and, and artificial intelligence. Um, also, uh, you know, the digital economy upgrading. And more importantly, I think China is paying more attention to the green development of the economy so that there is a, a, a strict policy on how pollution could be conducted by the, the traditional in industry. So by transforming the, the traditional industry to make it low carbon emission and also uh, getting into the, the low emission uh, economy system, I think that there's a very painful adjustment domestically. Externally, there's a slowdown in the major economy, the, the United States due to the hiking interest rate and also in Europe, the recovery is very uh, sluggish. <laughs> and in, sorry, in Japan, uh, South Korea, and also uh, the neighboring country, there is also uh, a relatively uh, strong challenges in terms of external demand for the Chinese goods. Yes, and, and China's central bank has injected liquidity into the banking system through operations of the medium-term lending facility and reverse repos. How do you look at these measures? This method certainly have helped, but it hasn't actually penetrated into the grassroots, the small and micro, the small, medium-sized and micro enterprises as we expected. So maybe it would take a longer time. But the, also the challenges from this medium and small enterprises, they are still recover from the COVID-19 uh, pandemic because due to the three-year-long of the pandemic, the supply chain, the investment and the business base and also profitability have been, you know, uh, fully uh, uh, seriously affected. And to fully recover from the pandemic, I think it will require some more time. And we, we are waiting for some uh, future recovery for this enterprise, this enterprise. Mm -hmm. The downward pressure for investment is due to this uh, uh, small enterprises, which created uh, investment, uh, industrial activity, and employment. Now, if these small and medium-sized enterprises do not recover very well, then they will be still uh, painful uh, in, in you know struggle uh, economic growth in the in the months ahead. Well, the the surveyed urban jobless rate came in as at five point two percent in May. That is, uh, which is the same as the previous month. But youth unemployment rate has reached a record high as uh, the unemployment rate for young people aged sixteen to twenty four rose to twenty point eight percent. So, how is the labor market impacting China's e economic recovery, and what policies can be implemented to address the challenges in the employment sector? Yeah, the, the employment figure is, is, is complicated. On the one hand, the general unemployment rate is still uh, you know, stable, uh, about 5%, 5.2%, which is not that bad. 
But for the youth unemployment at the age, particularly 16 to 24, uh, they just come out from the middle school or, or from the or the from the, from the university. So they they short term mismatch in the job market. Uh, the expectation of the school leavers and also the reality. And there's a significant gap for uh, these people to find a suitable job in the short term. But as the economy recovers, I, I think the problem probably would be uh, get, getting better. Mm-hmm. But uh, it doesn't mean that the government should wait. And say, uh, there should be some measures. Uh, the the employ, employer, the and Enterprises and local officials, uh, different organizations, they have to pay significant attention to the youth unemployed problem to make to make sure they can uh, create more jobs for the uh, uh, available for them to to work. On the other hand, I think the school level, university levels, they have to be a little bit more realistic of adapting into the employment uh, market. Uh, how to uh, you know, compromise the high expectation with the harsh reality is also uh, another issue. So it's the demand side and supply side problem. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you, Dr. Yao Shujie from uh, Chengkong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. After 10 straight hikes, the U.S. Federal Reserve is leaving interest rates unchanged. The move is a temporary reprieve as the Fed grapples with sky-high inflation, but new figures show things may be cooling off. Owen Faircloth reports. A breather for the U.S. Central Bank after some of the most aggressive rate hikes in years. The Federal Reserve opting not to increase its benchmark interest rate any higher than up to 5.25% after 10 successive rate hikes when inflation began to spiral. But after topping 9% in June last year, those price rises have dropped. Eggs, one of the most visible symbols. The average price of a dozen now just over $2.50. That's almost half their January peak. And it's arguably a welcome breather for Fed Chair Jerome Powell, who had to firefight a potential banking crisis when four regional lenders collapsed in the spring as well as prepare for the consequences of the U.S. defaulting on its debt, though this was averted. But Powell is cautious about pausing rates for too long. Nearly all committee participants expect that it will be appropriate to raise interest rates somewhat further by the end of the year. But at this meeting, considering how far and how fast we've moved, we judged it prudent to hold the target range steady to allow the committee to assess additional information and its implications for monetary policy. Inflation has dipped and then risen again several times over the past year and was 4% at its latest count. That's Owen Faircloth reporting. For more on this in U.S. economy, our Zhao Yang spoke with Yan Liang, professor of economics at Willamette University and Aina Tungen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, Yan, first of all, the Federal Reserve chairman said their interest rate will be left where they are for the time being, but he did signal that there could be interest rate hike later this year. So why is this pause or skip, do you think? Right. I think some of the Federal Reserve's FOMC members would wanted to call this as a skip uh, rather than a pause, because as you mentioned, they still have the meeting in July and September. And ultimately, I think they wanted to hike the rates to somewhere between 5.5% to 5.75%, 5. 
which means they're still considering two more uh, 25 basis points increases um, in the interest rates. Um, and the reason that they do that is because I think they wanted to take the time and see how um, the interest rates effect on the economy uh, is going to be. Um, so they're going to watch more, you know, sort of um, the data from labor market, from inflation, you know, and so that would give them further indications of if they wanted to continue to hike or not. Now, granted, I think, you know, the Federal Reserve is really uh, trying hard to, because they are kind of in a very delicate place, right? They can fall between a hard place or a rock place, uh, because if they continue to hike, they could really, uh, you know, lead the economy into recession. But if they don't hike enough, they worry that inflation is going to continue to, you know, be starving. Um, so I think they wanted to see if the interest rate hikes previously, the 10 times 500 basis point increase, are going to slow the economy enough. And also how the regional banks, um, given the three bank failures, would they also tighten their lending standards, which then would allow the Fed to, um, you know, uh, hike less, um, mm. which I think they, you know, in some ways they wanted to somehow, um, you know, uh, avoid being blamed um, if the economy does enter a recession. Mm. So, Aina, so what do you make of the Federal Reserve decision or its strategy? I think they have a misplaced stra strategy. I, um, I respect my, my colleague, but I think Jan is being very sympathetic to them. No one has any faith uh, anymore in the, in the Fed. They, they, they don't understand why they keep harping on this inflation number at a time when they're literally killing the economy. Uh, the markets were mixed in terms of the reaction, but at the end of the day, they're fighting the wrong battle. Um, you know, the, uh, rate hikes are very good at, uh, you know, dampening um, excess capacity and things like that, keeping uh, companies from investing in uh, additional plant machinery at a time when they, they're not needed. But they're not good at dealing with um, structural inflation, which has to do with services in the United States. You know, you, you go and you look at where the increases have been. It hasn't been in, in goods. Uh, there's been some, obviously, in oil and food. But the major amount of inflation is due to increased wages and costs associated with the medical field, educational, uh, retail, etc. Mm. So, Yen, this decision actually comes after the CPI number release. So what's in the core inflation that has still driving the prices up? Right. So I need to first make a disclaimer. Um, I'm not sympathetic to the Fed's decision, the Fed's policy at all. Um, I think I would stress explaining their internal logic of the sort of skip. But I totally agree. I think they're really shooting at the wrong place. Um, when you look at the inflation rate, um, you know, most of it is because of you know, like rental prices, rental costs that have been mm -hmm. rising. And the latest number was about 8% of the increase in rental costs. And so um, I agree. I don't think rate hikes could help very much on that. Um, because, you know, when you increase the rates, that means the supply of housing, the construction is going to slow down. That could only worsen the problem uh, because there's not enough housing. There's not enough housing that's affordable for middle class, for example. Uh, right now, you know, with all the new housing uh, listing on the market, um, the only 32% of them are actually affordable for middle income families um, compared to, you know, about 50% five years ago. So I definitely think, you know, hiking the interest rate is not going to do what they think would do, which is to slow down the labor market and to soften the wage growth. Um, the annual wage growth, by the way, has slowed down from 4.4% to now 4.3%. And that is barely keeping up with inflation. Actually, it's trailing inflation. So this whole idea that we can somehow hike the interest rate 
to kill the labor market and to kill that wage growth in order to fight inflation, I think it's really missing the point, um, especially when you look at the Kansas City Fed just released a re uh, research report that showed that nearly 60% of inflation, inflation in 2021 was because of corporate profits. Mm -hmm. So how does uh, hiking rates um, would help with that, right? So um, I don't think that the Fed is, is, is making the right moves, and I don't think interest rates the best um, instrument um, to fight inflation. But nonetheless, that's in their calculation that somehow um, if they hike the interest rate, it can somehow reduce that you know core inflation rate, which exclude food and energy, mm. uh, which to them, to them is still high at 5.4%. Um, now, I just want to make one more point, which is I think this idea that somehow we need to achieve that magical 2% inflation rate, um, it's very mythical. Um, there's no reason 2% is just the optimal, it's the golden rate, especially um, I think during the great moderation, the U.S. inflation rate is low um, thanks to globalization, thanks to you know cost-effective production. But now it's gone. I think the United States how now has focused a lot more on so-called resilience, you know, French shoring and all these. This would inevitably drive up costs and therefore prices. And so mm -hmm. I think you know they have this fixed target that they're obsessed with, and they have the wrong tool. Um, so the, the outcome can be only disastrous. Mm, so Yen, talking about the CPI, actually in May it shows that inflation actually ease. We still remember that last year the inflation it peaked at uh, 9.1 percent, and uh, that was a 40 years high. But now it's down to 4 percent. So what do you, how do you look at it? Will the CPI CPI numbers still be sticky for the rest of the year? I think that really in some ways depends, right? It depends really on the energy costs, um, which we know that has been going down. The gasoline price has gone down, you know, by about 20% from the peak. Um, but, you know, that is not something uh, I think we, we talked about before, right? There are so many moving pieces that could affect the energy costs. Um, so it, it's not clear that this is going to remain um, to, to continue to go down, um, not to mention, you know, some of the other uh, costs that we mentioned, like rental costs, like car, car uh, prices, um, and also, you know, some of the simply corporate greed and, and power. So all these could definitely, you know, change the pictures. Um, mm. But I think what the Fed is trying to do is now, again, to signal to the market that, you know, we might still have rate hikes. So be careful out there and try to tighten your lending and try to soften your business activities. So then we may be able to, you know, bring down inflation without crashing the economy. But again, only time will tell um, if that signaling effect is actually working. Mm, so Aina, so what do you think about the health of the U.S. economy in the face of the tax layoffs, the banking stuffs, and also will the inflation still be persistent there? Um, the, the health of the U.S. economy is not great. Um, basically, people are falling behind. Uh, wage growth is less than inflation. Um, people are maxing out their credit cards. You had another uh, roughly 0.1% uh, increase in credit card debt. Now, seven, total debt uh, for consumers is about $17 trillion, um, about half of the national debt. You know, you start adding them together, it seems like a large number. And, you know, you have the same increase in terms of uh, mortgages, about 1%. So, you know, th these are not positive signs. The growth for the U.S., depending on who you talk to, could be, uh, you know, around 1% uh, this year. Uh, conference, The conference board is predicting 0% next year, which is in essence saying that there's going to be a recession. So uh, right now, I, I agree. Everything the U.S. is doing in order to, you know, maintain its position, whether this friend-shoring, onshoring, all this stuff, is going to continue 
to increase costs. And I would I really underline what uh, Jan said about how the globalization actually put money in the pockets of Americans because it reduced costs on everything from electronic goods uh, to machinery. And now those days are over and not because <laughs> anything anyone else has done, but by the U.S.'s own choice. That's Yan Liang, professor of economics at Willamette University and Aina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yan. You're listening to World Today. Stay tuned. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Germany has unveiled its first ever national security strategy. The strategy commits Germany to increase defense spending to 2% of its GDP, although this increase will be measured on a multi-annual average basis. It also designates the German armed forces as the cornerstone of Europe's conventional defense. The strategy identifies Russia as the greatest threat to peace and security in the Euro-Atlantic area. It describes China as an acting increasing as acting increasingly as a comp- competitor and rival to Berlin. But it also, it also says that without Beijing, many global challenges and crises cannot be resolved. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Tui Hongjian, head of European Studi- Studies Department at China Institute of International Studies. Dr. Tui, thanks for joining us. Hi. Um, so, what is your major takeaway from Germany's first ever national security strategy, and what does it reveal about Germany's um, ambition in terms of its security role in Europe? I have a uh, you know two uh, major uh, impression about this uh, uh, German government's uh, uh, strategy on uh, uh, security. Uh, firstly, uh, as we know, uh, it's emphasized. Uh, emphasize that uh, that a huge change of the international relations, especially the security environment for Germany. So it uh, also gave a reason for the uh, government to launch its uh, the first, as we know, the national security strategy. Another, I think, impression is uh, German government tried to uh, convince not only the public opinion in Germany and also the European countries and. Uh, also, international community that uh, the uh, change of the policy and also even the logic behind the policies uh, it, it's so re- reasonable because of, uh, as we know, so-called uh, Ukrainian crisis and also uh, the worse and the worse situation for Germany and not only the security uh, in the sense of uh, defense and the military and also the security for the people. So I think that uh, now it's a very very big effort for this uh, government to try to, uh, you know, uh, find out the uh, consensus uh, between the different parties uh, in the government and also the different ideas uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, the strategy emphasizes Germany's commitment to increase defense spending to two percent of its GDP. How is Germany going to fulfill that pledge? As we know, that Germany is the biggest economy in Europe. So uh, it looks like uh, it will be easier for Germany to pay something more for its uh, defense. But as we know, in the past uh, uh, several decades, the German governments uh, depended on economic diplomacy and to uh, promote its uh, interests. So once the German government tried to 
you know, transfer its uh, policy uh, priority from the uh, economy to the security. Certainly, I think they, uh, it will give some, uh, uh, I think, uh, a difficult situation for this uh, uh, government and also for the parties in the government. And also, I think now uh, still a gap between the government and the public opinion. Also, we know in the past decades, especially uh, after the World War II, uh, there has been a, uh, also you know the huge uh, movement or the thought in the, for the public uh, in the name of the so-called uh, peace uh, peaceism. So I think now it's uh, uh, to pay the money. Uh, will not be a problem, but uh, the sustainable uh, payment or financial support for the uh, budget uh, for defense, I think uh, that would be a big test for this German government and also its uh, successor. Mm-hmm. Well, the strategy describes China, which is Germany's biggest trading partner, as acting increasingly as a competitor and rival to Berlin. But it adds that without Beijing, many global challenges and crises cannot be resolved. W- what do you make of this? And, and how do you think this, this is going to mean to China-Germany relations? Regarding to this uh, strategy, uh, German government tried to make clear uh, its uh, partners and uh, its uh, uh, rivals and uh, even its enemy. Uh, according to my understanding, now uh, so far, the German government uh, is still trying to uh, have some uh, balance uh, of the perception on China and also its policy towards China. Also, you know, this so-called uh, multifaceted uh, definition about China in the name of the uh, partner, uh, competitor and the rivalry. I think it shows uh, a little bit of contradiction in the mindset of German government. Also, you know, uh, to define China in uh, three different uh, levels, uh, a little bit easy. But how to practice uh, in the policy, I think that would be a very big problem for the German government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Chinese Premier Li Qiang will soon visit Germany and he will hold the seventh China-Germany intergovernmental consultation during his visit. What do you think we can expect? As we know, this uh, government consultant is a very, very big uh, uh, achievement, especially during the uh, Chancellor Merkel's administration. And it shows a high level of a cooperation between China and Germany. So now it's time to uh, restart this uh, government uh, consultant. It will be helpful, especially uh, for German side uh, to correct its um, perception on China. And as we know, it's also the first uh, uh, consultant after the Chinese new government. So I think it's also time for Chinese government to show some more uh, active message to our uh, German side, including China will insist it's uh, opening up and the reform policy, and China try to have some more cooperation, not only uh, in some uh, traditional areas, and also try to explore some uh, new areas of, of cooperation with the German side. Mm-hmm.
Well, thank you, Dr. Tui Hongjian, head of European Studies Department at China Institute of International Studies. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for further discussion, you can follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Thank you.